According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in uh, Philippians 2.14 tonight. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. If we sit here in carnality, uh, we're wasting our time. So let's take a moment for silent prayer. Confess any sin that needs to be dealt with, and then humble your heart under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word, for the blessing we have to assemble together, for the grace provision, Father. This is entirely uh, your grace that allows us to be here tonight, that uh, has provided a lampstand, that's provided uh, the word of God going forth, here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept. And I thank you for brothers and sisters that have the word of God as their number one priority. Uh, Father, we ask that you would reward the volition that hungers and thirsts after righteousness, that you would uh, lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Father, we give you the praise and the glory tonight in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are going to get started here in Philippians 2.14, but it has been our practice uh, for some time now, years, uh, that we take the first 10 minutes of a Wednesday night class uh, for any questions and answers. Uh, We've got a microphone ready to go if Lewis would be so kind as to run the microphone for us. A couple of questions came in by email and uh, about the filling of the Holy Spirit. It appears to me that the filling of the Holy Spirit is letting the Spirit have control. Uh, several verses seem to speak of this, more to the point, Romans 6.13, where it uses yield. And uh, yeah, yieldedness is, uh, is an old school uh, Baptist term, comes from the King James and aspects there. Romans 6.13, do not go on presenting the members of your body as sin, uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members instruments of righteousness to God. And so, yeah, picking up on the idea of yieldedness. The Greek word in Ephesians 5.18 is plerao, which is a verb for filling. Uh, like pleroma is fullness, and uh, be filled with the Spirit. But even the idea of filling uh, still can convey that aspect of yieldedness or control, particularly because alcohol is the parallel there. It says, do not get drunk with wine, uh, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And so that too speaks of yieldedness, it speaks of control, if you're under the influence of, uh, of alcohol, for example, or you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, that's the, uh, the aspect there. Uh, Bill goes on to ask the question, he says, when we lose the filling of the Spirit, it is not so much a thing lost, but a change of control. That is, our flesh versus the Spirit. In short, it is either the Spirit in control or the old man is in control in us. And I would agree. And, but I would... I think it is a thing that's lost. I think the filling is lost. And uh, so I I would uh, maybe pick a nit with that. But it is something lost. It's a loss of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, But it does also include the transfer of control. So um, I think it can be expressed in both terms. And then a, a Proverbs question from this morning about the poor and the needy. 
Um, it's kind of like when we're told to love your neighbor and then somebody wants to know, well, who's my neighbor? Uh, what is the scope of the poor and the needy? He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. And uh, these terms are used in, in a fairly common way. Um, but the question does say, should we help everyone in sight? You know, you can't, uh, you can't, uh, you can't help everybody. So who do you help? How do you prioritize? What, uh, what is your criteria? And so forth. Also, oppression versus and graciousness are are uh, separate studies as well. And so, uh, if you if you drive past or walk past, or if a, if a panhandler hits you up for uh, you know, a buck or whatever, and you don't give him a dollar, is that oppression? See? And so, I don't think so, but uh, these are the questions that we all have to answer, and, and so you decide, okay, between church and home, uh, there's there's five intersections, I've got a minimum of five, sometimes seven uh, vagrants or, or folks between, you know, do I, do I pay all of them? Do I pay some of them? Do I pay none of them? What do I do? What is, uh, what is our approach here? And so, those are legitimate questions, and, and uh, I think when it, with respect to our our generosity with respect to our grace, with respect to our, our ministry one to another, that it says let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So we start with our flock, we start with our assembly, and this is the primary venue for our mutual reciprocal care for one another. Beyond that, of course, we have other endeavors, and that again, household of the faith, we, we prioritize believers over unbelievers. Uh, then when it comes to doing good to all men, that is every human on the planet, Again, we may prioritize and say, well, uh, who are the ones that God has brought across my path and in what context and in what setting? See, and so that then kind of helps to establish those parameters. So does that answer your question? Does that kind of hit or do you have a follow-up on that since you are here tonight? That is perfect. Because that is the question. People take these Old Testament stretches and you know, say, well, you know... Maybe you weren't saved if you're not helping the poor, blah, blah, blah. And they're using Old Testament passages, mm-hmm. which were addressed to Jews. And so you wonder. Right. But I think uh, I agree with what you said. That's the Well, and the, the best help you can provide is the gospel, Bible teaching, uh, the, the wisdom from the Word of God. You know, as far as, you know, money, cash, currency, that's kind of way down the list on, uh, on what we have to provide. And that's... Uh, that's another question there too. All right, so those are the emails. We have uh, some time tonight for uh, another question or two if there's uh, additional things that folks may have. Something you heard on the radio or read in a book or your coworker was telling you about. The rapture is not April 23rd, by the way. That was in the news. Uh, you know, anybody that's going to date a date like that, I just even if it was the original date, I think God would change it just to... Yeah, just to I mean, where where do they get off? The the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour, but these guys want to want to prove God wrong and say, "Oh, I know the date and here it is." Anyway, well, they lose their prophet status quickly. Well, that's right. Yeah, we can label them as false prophets and stone them to death, right? And the the rest will be fearful. All right. Well, if there's nothing else, then we'll get back to uh, where we left off in Philippians. Thank you, Lewis. So we have this uh, exhortation. It's the third and final one in this chapter. The first one was uh, make my joy complete. The second one was have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The third one now is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's what we've been dealing with in these verses, 12 through 18. 
And uh, one thing that will keep you from achieving that, and one thing that will uh, work against your fear and trembling is uh, grumbling and disputing. And uh, this is again part of Paul's writing style. He, uh, he likes to contrast things uh, such as, you know, in, uh, uh, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. Uh, he likes to contrast things on the one hand with things on the other hand. And so it's not surprising to me that we have the tandem of fear and trembling there in verse 12 and then we have the tandem of grumbling or disputing in verse 14. That's, uh, that's very typical for Paul in his writing style. And so this is actually point four in the outline for this uh, paragraph or for this uh, se- segment of the chapter. Uh, the antithesis of fear and trembling is, is grumbling and disputing. And so this is something we want no part of. And uh, particularly as church age believers, we have every example that's been given to us so that we don't imitate Israel. Uh, it's, you know, uh, the fact that we have such an example. Let's, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 10. You'll see what I'm talking about. Um, Israel is the example of, uh, of redeemed people that should have known better but grumble and come under God's wrath. <laughs> you think about how powerful the Old Testament is. It gives us these quintessential examples for, you know, any circumstance imaginable. If you think Sodom, what do you think? You know, if you think, uh, Wilder Exodus generation, what do you think? I mean, there's just certain, uh, things in the Old Testament that just jump out at you as timeless illustrations. And, uh, the Exodus generation is exactly that for the, the application here about grumbling that we're being warned about. So, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, and I know the, the, the slide says 6 through 11, but you'll notice in verses 1 through 5 kind of sets the table here for this. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And so by our fathers, of course, he's talking about the Jewish um, fathers there. But they were together. They were treated as a corporate body. That They were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were redeemed as a corporate body. They were redeemed out of Egypt as a corporate body. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That is, that's who they identified with. Moses was their redeemer. They were baptized into Moses. They identified with Moses. And, uh, and so that means they're under the law when Moses brings them the law. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. And so you think about the unique provision that they had as a people as a covenant people, as a redeemed people. Now, that's the parallel. That's the pattern. Now, we are not Israel. Israel was not the church. We are distinct. But the similarities are such that we can identify the analogy that the things they they did are analogous to what we are expected to do and what we should learn from. And so, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. And that's, uh, that's huge. We talk about the good pleasure of God. The good pleasure of God is, is inescapably connected to His plan, to His will. To uh, we, we were looking at that last week as well with respect to the will of God and uh, he, how He's at work in and through us to will and to work for His good pleasure. His, it's His work, it's His will, it's His good pleasure. And here they are. Uh, it's His will to redeem them, it's His work to redeem them, it's His work to bring them through the wilderness, it's His work to bring them into the land. And they're not having it. 
They are grumbling, they are resisting, they are rebelling. And so what happens then? Well, he's not well pleased, okay? And that's a consequence we don't want to find ourselves in. We want to stay in the will of God. We want to stay busy doing the works of God. Or we're going to find ourselves in the same position, not well pleased, okay? And that's a, that's a, a term we don't want to hear. So with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us. These things happened as examples for us. And that was a principle we had in Hebrews last Sunday. The idea of the example. We're not to fall through the same example of disobedience. Uh, So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So, you know, if you think about it, there's doctrine, there's scriptures available. Uh, Thou shalt not covet is still a is still a sin is still a command. We're expected to uh, to obey the scriptures. They were expected to obey the scriptures, but we've been given so much more. We've been given the command. We've been given the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We've been given empowerment to fulfill the scriptures. We've been given the example, the bad example of those guys of what happens when you fall short. And so, with everything we've been given, to whom much is given much shall be required. Of whom they've entrusted much, they will expect all the more. And so we have an example. And we should not crave the evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. And so uh, while Moses is uh, up there getting the tablets, they're down there building a golden calf. They're down there throwing their orgies and all the other uh, things that happened with the, uh, the fertility rituals of that idolatry. It says, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell on one day. Now that's a separate event. But all of these events that all took place, uh, Paul is recounting the history of Israel and their unbelief. Uh, 23,000 fell in one day. You know, and and thank thank goodness for the the priest that went in there with a spear, you remember him? And he stabbed through uh, (laughs) the man and the woman in the middle of the act, you know, it's called killing two birds with one stone or killing two fornicators with one spear, you know. And uh, you just put an end to it just like that. And it checked the plague. It checked the plague. So uh, anyway, there's the example there. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. This is when the serpents were biting all the people. And it, lo- it seems to have been pretty universal that everybody there was bit. And so they had to look to the cross uh, and to look to the, the bronze serpent and, uh, and live. Then it goes on to say, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Do you know who the destroyer is? Jesus. Okay? You know, you go back to the vocabulary and you see that. The, the term is, is curious because it's the term for the avenger, the, the term for the blood avenger. And uh, when you break down the Hebrew, you realize, oh, wait a minute, that's the same term for the, uh, the Redeemer, <laughs> the kinsman, the Goel. And you get some, some principles there, and it's, it's exciting to see, to see these things. And uh, so what do you want to be? you want to be the object of God's good pleasure, or do you want to be the object of the destroyer? Because we, we shouldn't be in that position. And yet, what do we do? What do we do? We compromise. We, uh, we uh, as the book of James says, friendship with the world is, is enmity, is hostility against God. We put ourselves back on an adversarial footing. 
and uh, and we're subject to God's discipline. So that's uh, that's what it is. All right, verse eleven. Now these things happened to them as an example, they, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages has come. And uh, the the role of the church as being unique in human history as being the uh, body of redeemed that is suited for Christ. Christ is the one that came in the fullness of time to redeem humanity. Christ is the one that's the focal point of the plan. But we are His bride. And, and so if Christ is a focal point, the bride is also a focal point. And this expression here, upon whom the ends of the ages have come, uh, it speaks to the unique nature of the church age, the mystery age of the church. The bride of Christ is unique. And even the millennium, even the fullness of time does not reach the position that you and I have in Christ to be baptized into union with God the Son, with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is, that is unique. There is nothing like it before, nothing like it since. And so uh, I can appreciate that. So we do not want to imitate Israel. Imitating Israel is instant infamy. And uh, even worse. All right? Now, two vocabulary terms, of course, under point A we'll look at grumbling, under point B we'll look at disputing. And uh, they're both wrong, and uh, either one is, is out of line. Uh, grumbling is kind of a fun term because uh, you have the, uh, some, some expressions are onomatopoetic, if you know what that means. That means uh, a lot of times the word sounds like it sounds, sounds like it means, uh, and gonguzmos is kind of that way with a gong gong sound, gong guzmas, and uh, the grumbling has that gonging kind of thing. Um, in any event, uh, four, four uses for gong guzmas, uh, another eight uses for the verb gonguzo. Um, as, you, as you deal with this, clearly the Exodus generation is our pattern, and uh, there, there are clear Septuagint allusions uh, in all of these, and many of these New Testament passages that point back to Exodus 16 and, and the uh, wilderness grumblings. But I want to start, though, by pointing out that not every instance of grumbling is necessarily inappropriate. And because the, the first use that we have is Acts 6.1. And so this, I think, gives us a parameter whereby we might balance out our, uh, our absolute statement. So uh, let's start with that, with Acts 6. And how do we reconcile two statements that both appear to be um, absolutes, right? Because Philippians 2.14 is clear. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That seems to be a universal statement. I don't see footnotes there. I don't see exceptions, right? If that statement uh, on its own, at face value, by itself, that statement says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That means these widows in Acts 6 were sinning. These widows in Acts 6 were uh, violating Philippians 2.14. Okay? Any thoughts on that? Alright, Acts 6.1. This is early in the church and um, as they were growing and they were adding and uh, I mean hundreds, even thousands were uh, naming the name of Christ and beginning to uh, crossing over from Old Testament status into New Testament status in their, in their faith. And it says, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, a gonguzmas, arose. 
on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against their native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. All right, so this is the term. And this is, there's, you can't debate it, you can't uh, dispute it. Um, I mean, it is a grumbling. That's what they're doing. And yet, the twelve don't uh, chew them out, don't discipline them, don't, uh, you know, throw scripture at them and say, you rebels, you're worse than the Exodus generation. <laughs> okay? Now to be fair, Philippians 2 hasn't been written yet, so they can't quote Philippians 2. Uh, Paul's not even uh, an apostle yet. Um, but but when, when has grumbling ever been acceptable? When has grumbling ever been valid? Okay, Remember that grumbling is always invalid. It's lamentations is the sanctified grumbling that, uh, that offers a complaint yet with, um, I, and I think that's, even though the word gonguzmos is here, I think because they surrendered it into the hands of the apostles, they were spared. They were spared judgment, they were spared discipline, they were spared a rebuke as far as this goes. So, uh, but nevertheless, it is a complaint. And it's an issue, it's a real issue. These widows are being, being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And so right here, we observe several things in this context. I think we observe, first of all, that the complaint was legitimate. That the complaint did highlight a real issue that was not good. And it also attempted to um, spark another issue that would also have not been good. See, And so... Um, I don't know. I still, the grumbling, the 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 activity itself, is is not praised and it's not necessarily appropriate. Um, it is curious to me though that they weren't rebuked for it. Um, as far as that goes, all right. So the the uh, the twelve said it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And so though the widows are grumbling, uh, the the disciples though have the wisdom that is the apostles, the twelve, they have the wisdom to say, all right, this is a problem and we're going to address it, but we're going to address it in a way that doesn't make the problem worse. Okay? Because how tempting would it be for spiritual leadership to just, ooh, we've got we to gotta jump in here. We can't have unhappy people. We've got we to gotta address these grumblers and we've got to placate them and we've got to, you know, whatever. And so the apostles could have neglected the Word of God. And then just become, uh, you know, table waiters. This is how uh, the office of deacon was birthed, by the way, uh, in, uh, right here in this chapter. So, uh, therefore, brethren, it says in verse 3, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And, and this too, I think, is remarkable in a grace way where the apostles were able to put it back on them and say, okay, you're grumbling. Are you willing to help uh, deal with this? Uh, find us some table waiters. Find us some servants. And so the apostles put it back to the brethren and uh, they select and, and for these men to be selected. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so the apostles make it very clear. 
that their, uh, their priority is teaching the truth. Their priority is the spiritual d- uh, dynamic of what apostles uh, back then were expected to do. And I love verse 5. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. Now that right there, I think, is what saved him. That right there is what kept him because whatever the grumbling was in verse 1, they stopped it. They stopped it when, and they responded to the leadership there. Um, unlike you know the Exodus generation, they, they just kept on grumbling. It didn't matter what Moses told them or what Aaron told them. They just kept on grumbling and, and kept on grumbling. But when the apostles said, look, here's our plan. We're going to appoint servants. Uh, give us some nominations. Give us some recommendations. Pick out seven, ma- uh, seven men. We're going to put them in charge of this task. It's going to be dealt with. And we're going to keep studying and teaching and praying and all the stuff that that we do. And so the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And so this, this shapes a lot of things. And this, is, this actually shapes some of the uh, edits that we made to our church constitution in 2014. This uh, is, is uh, the outline for why we put the procedures that we put in as far as uh, what are the uh, rights and privileges of membership, the blessings that you have to be able to voice your concerns and to have your concerns represented the fact that any member that has a concern uh, has a, the capacity for a deacon to bring that concern to the attention of the, uh, of the pastor so that way they're not viewed as grumbling or, or uh, causing trouble and, and things of that nature. And then, uh, and then notice, when the apostles come up with a solution, they're on board. They're on board. They're not just stomping their feet and demanding and telling the apostles what to do, Right? They're not shaking their fists and saying, here's our problem, here's what you need to do to fix it. They're bringing it to their attention and leaving it with them. And the apostles then assessed it and found the solution and took the leadership and, and uh, led in the process thereafter. So, uh, they chose Stephen, and we've got a list of these names here, who's uh, not only the first deacon, but also the first martyr in the very next chapter. A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, We'll see him also in some evangelism and some uh, prophetess daughters. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, they, that is the apostles, laid their hands on them. That too, I think, gets missed. And a lot of the Baptist constitutions miss that because they have everything with bottom-up and congregational sovereignty, thinking that these are the men that the congregation made deacons. Oh, they made nominations, but the appointment happened top-down from the apostles down. They laid hands on the, uh, the deacons. So, uh, so there we have it. Now, that's the closest we have to any gongudzmas that can be somewhat sanctified or somewhat appropriate or debatable at least whether it was right or wrong. Um, I, I think it was essentially wrong to be grumbling, but uh, they weren't rebuked for it because the disciples recognized they had a legitimate grievance and had to deal with it uh, accordingly. How about 1 Peter 4.9? The other use of gonguzmas here as a complaint. 1 Peter 4.9. Verse 7 says, The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, 
because love covers a multitude of sins. As we notice uh, the angelic conflict ramping up, as we notice the testing ramping up, as we notice conflict in our, among our members, among our deacons, among our elders, in our marriages with our adult children, there's no shortage of, test, of testing going on at the moment. And so what does it say? Ramp up your Bible class attendance? Oh, it says ramp up your prayer. I like that. All right, and keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And be hospitable to one another without gonguzmas, without complaint. And as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. You've got at least one spiritual gift. Every believer has minimum one. Prove that from this verse. It doesn't say one and only one, but it has at least one. Uh, And uh, there it is. Employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So your gift is not for you. Your gift is for everybody but you. (laughs) Okay, My gift is not for me. God didn't make me a pastor so I could pastor myself. Uh, Your gift, my gift, every believer's gift is for everybody else in, uh, in their assembly. We do operate by virtue of flocks, and so the primary use is us, this flock here. Okay? And uh, aspects there. It says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. And so it's a kind of a simple division. Peter likes to keep things simple. Take the 11 permanent spiritual gifts and classify them. Either a speaking gift or a serving gift. And, uh, and operate accordingly. So, no grumbling. No complaints, no grumbling. Uh, so the two uh, uses there, Acts 6 and 1 Peter 4, is where Gonguzmas is rendered complaint. In John 7, 1, and our passage tonight, Philippians 2, 14, the same Gonguzmas is rendered as grumbling. Grumbling. And I, th- I like complaint better, uh, just because to me, Complaint is a noun, and grumbling is more of a gerund or more of a of a verb kind of a thing. But anyway, it is a noun. Do all things without complaint or uh, argument. John seven one, where it's translated grumbling. I think we could render it as complaint or um, what have you. And that's not the right verse. These things Jesus was walking in Galilee. All right. I will find my typo. How about that? I'll show you the easy way and the hard way to do this. Philippians 2.14. Grumbling. Don Guzmas. Search this resource. John 7.12. All right, John 7 and verse 12. Well, there you go. Um, This is the uh, six months prior to the cross. This is the fall feast of uh, 32 A.D. I believe that the crucifixion was in April 33 A.D., uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, the Day of Atonement, and the, the fall season for uh, for those feasts. This is the one right before the crucifixion, though. So he's six months out from the cross. And uh, the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of the Booths, uh, Booths was near. And his brothers had all these plans for him. 
and uh, things that they expected for him to do. They said in verse 3, leave here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see your work which you were doing. The Galilee is just two small potatoes, you know. You're getting a big reputation here, but this is, come on, this is Galilee. You've got you to gotta hit the big time. And uh, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. Well, when did Jesus ever say that? <laughs> when did he ever say, you know what, I want to become the most famous? Uh, he never said anything like that. Anyway, the brothers continue, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. James and Jude and those guys, they don't get saved till after the resurrection. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. <laughs> you're always in season because you're, you're not saved. You're part of this fallen world. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And it's curious that they were tempting him in this way. It's curious because this is his last opportunity before the crucifixion. If he's going to bail, if he's going to defy the will of God the Father, this would be an event for him to do it. Because the Feast of Booths is when all the Gentiles are supposed to come and bow before the Messiah. The Gentile kings, and in fact in the Millennial Kingdom, Gentile kings will be required to appear in Jerusalem at this feast, at the Feast of Booths. And they will have to bow before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So you might imagine that uh, he had a lot of temptation at this time. So having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So he's, he's very circumspect about it. He's very smart in what he's doing here, not making a big splash, just uh, observing so the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? You know, he's the, he's the main speaker they're looking forward to and he's not showing up. And there was much gongusmas among the crowds concerning him. Now again, if maybe Acts 6 is a little debatable, then maybe John 7 is somewhat debatable as well because some were saying he's a good man. Does that count as gongusmas? <laughs> Does that count as a complaint, as a grumbling? Um... I don't think that that's so bad. He is a good man. Uh, but others were saying, uh, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. And so this maybe also casts a, uh, a little bit of a, of a flavor on the gonguzmas vocabulary that we see that, uh, that it's speaking perhaps not so much into the attitude, at least in this instance, uh, as it is to the uh, the murmuring the uh, the the fact that it's it's under the radar because they don't want to be don't want to be overheard by the religious leaders. Anyway, it's a week long feast. And about halfway through, Jesus gets up and then he begins to teach, and that just shocks everybody, saying, "Well, wait a minute, he is here. <laughs> Where have you been this whole time? This is him, right?" And uh, the rest of it happens there. All right. So those are the four uses that the noun shows up. Our text tonight. Philippians 2.14, as well as Acts 6.1, 1 Peter 4.9, and John 7.12. That's not a lot to work with. Just four uses is not a lot to work with, especially since all four contexts appear to be widely uh, different. Well, fortunately, we also have a verb to go with the noun. The verb is gongudzo, G-O-N-G-U-Z-O, gongudzo. And uh, this one here is very clearly the, the activity uh, that we're looking at. 
in other words, to grumble, to complain, to murmur. And again, I think we'll, we're going to notice the case that these are negative. Starting with Matthew 20 and verse 11. Remember this crowd? This crowd is all upset. This is the parable of the laborers. And this is the crowd that worked all day long. The, the crowd that was there from the first hour to the end of the day. And they were watching it at the end of the day as, as the other people were getting paid that they were all getting paid the same amount that, uh, that these guys were uh, expecting. But for some reason they kind of started thinking that they were going to get more. And, uh, and we know how the story plays out. But um, So those that were hired about the 11th hour came and each one received a full denarius as if they'd worked all day long and they only worked an hour. And that's... Uh, that's gracious. That's very gracious on the part of the, the worker, on the, the, the master. And so when those hired first came, they just all of a sudden started thinking, well, clearly, we're, we're going to get 11 denarius here, 12 denarius. What are we going to get? They started thinking they're going to really uh, haul it in. But the landowner gave them the, the denarius they contracted for. <laughs> and then they started to gongudzo. They said, that's not right. So when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the scorching heat of the day. And so that there, I think, helps us. That gives us an insight. The grumbling, we see it again and again with the Exodus generation. We see it in other contexts. That the verbal activity, the, the process of grumbling is not just expressing a displeasure about what I'm not happy about. It, it, it's more than that. I'm not happy and it's your fault. <laughs> you're doing something wrong, God. Okay? This water is bitter. Or uh, it's that woman you gave me. <laughs> Which is what Adam, that was his complaint. You know, God should have given him a better woman and, and he wouldn't listen to her or whatever, you know. Um, but here they are complaining, you are wrong for what you're doing. Mrs. Job, another example. So with that grumbling comes an accusation that somehow God is unfair or wrong or uh, they're not approving. They're expressing their displeasure, even though God does all things according to His good pleasure. And that's the uh, that's the thing there. And of course He answers them and He says, I've done nothing wrong. What have I done wrong? Did you not agree with me for a denarius? That was the contract. You guys went into this on a law basis. You said you would work for the day for one denarius, so there you go. Um, yeah, I haven't stolen from you. We, we agreed and, and you got what you, uh, what you wanted. Um, but, you know, are you upset with me because I wanted to be gracious? I wanted to be generous? Take uh, what is yours and go. If I wish to give to the last man the same as you, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish? Can I not do with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? And if you ever notice, uh, when you have a grace attitude and the legalist uh, is always going to be disapproving of what you're doing <laughs> as far as that goes. These guys, he, he sends, them, sends them to work and they don't contract. They're not under law. They just agree, uh, whatever is right, I will give you. says, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll be fair. I'll be right with you. And they, they're not under contract. They don't have a set amount. They haven't agreed under, on a law basis to any amount. They just trusted that he, uh, that he would be righteous. And so, I tell you, that's what we want to do. We want to walk in grace and just leave it in the hands of God and trust that God is righteous. 
And, uh, and then we have no complaints after that. So that's the parable there in Matthew chapter 20. How about Luke 5? And is this one parallel? No, 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 this is with, uh, with Matthew. The calling of Levi. So he goes out and notices a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth and said to him, follow me. And uh, this, is, uh, this is extraordinary because the tax collectors were traitors. The, the tax collectors, uh, they, they got a contract with Rome in order to produce a certain amount of tax revenue. And then Rome didn't care how they got that revenue. Uh, so then they could accumulate whatever they could and keep the profits, you know. So, uh, and then most of them, though, did not want to be known as, you know, they would subcontract. They didn't want to do the, the dirty work or be seen publicly sitting in the booth. And so they would use middlemen and they would, they would uh, keep their contract uh, under, under wraps, so to speak. The problem with that, though, when you have a, a street dealer like that, uh, yeah, you can maintain some anonymity, but you got to pay the street dealer. You know, he's going to get his cut. And uh, if, you, if you're too cheap even for that, then you do the street dealing yourself. And uh, that means you endure the shame and despise the shame and get your own hands dirty um, because you're too cheap to even pay the, the street dealer. And that was Levi, okay? Sitting in the booth himself, collecting these taxes. And yet when Jesus said, follow me, he left everything behind, got up and began to follow him. And so he gives a big reception in his house and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And then these guys are the deplorables. These guys are absolutely rejected. They are outcasts. Uh, they are traitors. They are politically traitors. They are unclean. They have no part with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? So again, it's a complaint. And, and really, is it, is it really, does it hurt them at all? Is it any skin off their nose? How are they injured? Right? I mean, I get why the widows in Acts 6 were complaining because they were being neglected. They were, they had a, they, there was some damage that was done and they had something that was, uh, that was uh, you know, they could legitimately say they'd been robbed maybe, or the, the, crowd, the work crowd of legalists, they thought they'd been robbed. But what are these guys being robbed? What's it, what's it to them? So in the grumbling, of course, is the uh, dissatisfaction with what somebody else is doing for really no good reason other than the fact you don't like what that other person's doing. Why do they care if, if Jesus uh, eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? But that's the, uh, the aspect of their grumbling. And Jesus tells them, you really have no grounds for complaining. Doesn't it make sense to you? It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And uh, he came to seek and to save what was lost. And uh, these Pharisees have no concept for that because they don't think they're lost. They think they're righteous. They think they're the best. They think they're the, the apple of God's eye. and That makes them doubly lost. <laughs> and so uh, there's the grumbling there. Uh, John 6, 41, 43, and 61. 
And I use this a lot. I love John 6. It's the, good, it's the, uh, the bread of heaven passage. I am the bread. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a, I use it in communion services quite frequently. Um, because he's teaching and they're not liking it. And they're grumbling at what he's teaching. And, uh, and of course their perspective is wrong right from the very beginning of the chapter. He feeds the 5,000 and they, they think, wow, this is great, let's make him king because he can, he can feed us. Um, and then, uh, then he walks on water to get away from them. <laughs> they track him down, find him on the other side. Uh, they say in verse 25, Rabbi, when did you get here? You know, And you talk about what a great method to, to throw him off the track. Uh, you know, he, in front of everybody, he makes the disciples get in the boat and sail off while he stays on that side and then uh, goes up on the mountain to pray and then in the middle of the night he walks across the water himself, you know. And uh, so, yeah, it's a great way to throw them off your tracks. But anyway, they, they went around the lake and they found him on the other side. And he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So this, I think, too, feeds into the attitude that, that produces grumbling. They, uh, they're not spiritually minded. They're earthly minded. Uh, they have no interest in signs. The fact that the power of God just did a miracle, um, the idea that, wow, here's a prophet from heaven, here's an act of God. When's, you know, it's been 400 years since Malachi, and, and now we've got miracles. You would think that uh, if they had any kind of spiritual uh, curiosity that that would interest them to, uh, to listen to what this messenger from heaven had to say. They, they don't care about any of that. They don't care about a thing about that, you know. It's like folks that want to, you know, what are they looking for when they're visiting churches? <laughs> you know, is it a message from the Word of God or are there other things? You know, what kind of bowling league do they have? What's the singles ministry like? What's the, you know, what are, they, what, what are the programs? What's the music like? You know, all these other things. They've got you know, a bunch of criteria for what they're looking for. And uh, the teaching of the Word of God is pretty low on their list related to that. So, all right. So he says, this is why, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He says, quit working. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. In other words, get your priorities straight. Spiritual things first. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. And so, anyway, they keep begging Him, well, you know, do a sign, give us manna, give us food. So he says, well, tell you what, I am the bread of life. How about that? I'm giving myself. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. They don't want any part of this message either. And so um, when he gets through, say, verses 35 through 40, which I just love. I think it's a marvelous gospel message there. Uh, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him in verse 41. So you hear the gospel and then you just, that's obviously room to complain. Why were they complaining? They're complaining because he wouldn't do the, the, the multiply the loaves and fishes again and feed their bellies again. They were compl- grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And so they want no part of what he's teaching. Now, what I love about this is how does he respond to the grumbling? How should any pastor respond to grumbling in his, uh, in his flock? Is he compromised? Is he cave? 
Does he say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry? Does he change his message? Does he promise to never do that again? He actually doubles down and is curious to me. Um, he says, quit grumbling in verse 42, <laughs> or verse 43. Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. And, uh, and so he repeats, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. And um, you notice verse 47, I, uh, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes, came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he didn't back down at all. He repeated the bread message and then taught the issue of his flesh. So the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? (laughs) Okay, that didn't make it any better, did it? So now they're grumbling even more. So what does Jesus do? He says, oh, all right. He said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. (laughs) Okay. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Anyway, I think it's interesting and, and uh, there you have it. And even his disciples, once that crowd goes away, um, down to verse 60, therefore many of his disciples when they heard this said, uh, this is a difficult statement, who can listen to it? So even, even his disciples were struggling. And Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? And so we have uh, details there that I find interesting as well. All right. And again, John 7, that should be John 7, 12. How do I have the same typo twice? That's interesting. All right. Gongudzo. Yeah. How do you have the same the same uh, typo twice on the same slide? That's amazing to me. Grumbling. Huh. Whoops. Don Guzmas. Comes from Gonguzo. John seven thirty two. That is staggering to me. So the first typo was verse twelve, the second typo is verse thirty two. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. And in the process of all this grumbling and all this muttering and all this uh, hubbub around the crowds in John chapter 7, uh, some of them started to say, well, wait a minute, this is the Christ, isn't it? <laughs> in spite of all the other arguments and all the other debates and all the other things, um, 
that started to say, now wait a minute, is this, is this the one they're talking about? In verse 25, is this not the man they're trying to kill? And he, here he is speaking publicly and they're not stopping him? Wait a minute, do the rulers think that this is the Christ? And so, you know, they don't want to talk to the rulers about it and they don't want to be caught talking about it, but now they're starting to wonder, maybe these rulers aren't telling us everything. Maybe these rulers are hiding stuff from us. And I said, but man, we, this guy's from Nazareth and we don't know. We know where this guy's from. We don't know where the Christ is coming from. It shows you how untaught they are. The Pharisees knew that he was going to come from, from Bethlehem. But they haven't taught the crowd that. Why, why are they keeping the crowd in the dark that way? Anyway, so then some of them start getting saved and that's a problem. In verse 31, many of the crowd believed in him. Ooh, that's got to stop. And so they were saying when the Christ comes he will not perform more signs than this man's doing. I mean that was kind of their closing argument. This guy's got to be the Christ. They couldn't imagine a different Christ coming later doing more signs than this guy. He's got to be the Christ. And so they're believing in him. And so the Pharisees, they've got to put a stop to that. They heard the crowd, Gonguzo, muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. And we've got to put him under arrest. We've got to get him off the streets. He's got, he's got to stop teaching these people. And so that, that to me is also interesting because who are they really grumbling about? Are they, it says they're muttering these things against him. But really, isn't the larger complaint against their own leaders? Against the, what the leaders are telling them or not telling them or the suspicions that they have that's, that have been building throughout the whole chapter? I find that interesting as well. All right. And then of course, 1 Corinthians 10.10, which we saw a little bit ago uh, with the wilderness generation. They grumbled against him and, and they, uh, they were judged for that in the wilderness. Okay? Well, clearly, uh, all of this grumbling has a Septuagint illusion. All of this has, goes back to a foundation with the Exodus generation. Uh, I would encourage you between now and Sunday, just read these things in Exodus 16, verses 7 through 12. Read Numbers 14, verses 27 through 29. You're going to see two different episodes there. One of them is the Exodus generation. The other is the wilderness generation. Back-to-back generations. The children, by the way, were just as big of grumblers as the parents. So uh, why didn't God get angry with them and say, all right, that's it. Uh, I'm going to the third generation. I'm going to the fourth generation. I don't think he would have ever brought him into the land at that point. Would he have ever found a generation that, that, had, that would not grumble against him? I don't think so. The Jewish people are uh, obstinate, <laughs> hard-hearted, and, uh, and so forth. I think, I think he let the second generation come in because he promised Caleb and Joshua they could come in and they were getting old. <laughs> and so one for the sake of the, the children was for the sake of Caleb and Joshua. They said, all right, Joshua, lead them in. And so that's what they do there. Sunday we'll also, we'll wrap that up and then we'll move on to dialogue. Dialogismas. Dialogismas. Dialogue. That's the argument. That's the discussion. Do all things without grumbling or arguing almost always with a negative connotation. So we'll, we'll talk about that on Sunday as well. Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the blessing that we have to search these things. And Father, I do pray for wisdom and how do we, uh, how do we voice issues um, 
How does a child voice issues to their parents? How does a wife address issues to her husband? How do church members address issues to uh, to their pastor? How do employees voice issues to their to their boss? In what way can um, difficult things be spoken that they don't cross a line into into grumbling, into uh, disputing, into uh, into rebellion? So, Father, uh, open our eyes to see these things. How. If, uh, if there is a legitimate complaint or a grievance, something that, that should be dealt with, how can we do so in a gracious way, in a way that honors our Lord, in a way that, that uh, does not violate the, uh, the commands? Father, show us what the, the heart attitudes are behind the prohibition so that uh, even if maybe the external thing is, uh, is, is pretty close to identical, Father, the hard attitude is, is, uh, makes all the difference in the world. So uh, show us how these things come together, that we can make our own application, Father. And in the, in the application where we are grumbling, where we are clearly out of line, then open our eyes to that, Father, so we can quit it. We can, uh, we can stop grumbling and get past this besetting sin and move on to, uh, to a new stage of, of Christian growth. So Father, uh, provide for that abundantly. And I'm praying for myself most of all, in, uh, in, in this local church, Father, the pastor is the biggest grumbler in the flock. So, uh, Father, we, uh, we give that to you as well, praying for um, your grace, praying for your mercy, praying for growth and, uh, and victory in all these lessons. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.